Take your copy of the Bible and turn to Isaiah 45. I know you've heard me mention this theme repeatedly recently, but it's one the Lord's been impressing upon my head and my heart, uh, is that as He is outside of time and space, which that just makes my head hurt, Uh, but as He is outside of time and space, he, He knew everything and all things all at once because He's outside of time when He wrote this, which is just wonderful to think about that like when God originally wrote Isaiah 45, he had this day in mind because he's outside of time and all things are present in past and future to him at the same time. Uh, Wonderful to think of. This is God's word for you today. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, his right hand I've grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I'm the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. And the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I've stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and shall, uh, sorry, and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. 
The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. Who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come draw near together, you survivors of the nations. (coughs) They have no knowledge and carry about their wooden idols. Keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There's no other God besides me. Righteous God and his Savior, there is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him who shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Give us understanding and faith, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It's a good passage for a presidential election. I know, everybody's like, oh, please, no. I don't want to hear this sermon. (laughs) Actually, that's not true. We all want to hear this sermon. We don't want the presidential election, is it? We're just like, oh, man. Presidential elections seem to get worse and worse and worse by the uh, election, don't they? Uh, The good news is that our presidential elections, no matter how crazy and kind of chaotic and wild and fast and loose they are right now, is nothing compared to what presidential elections looked like back then. What we're dealing with in this passage is actually a transition of power that's getting ready to take place, and uh, we've heard a lot lately about a lack of a peaceful transfer in power, uh, nothing like what took place then, right? The way you transferred power back in this day was usually you killed your predecessor. You killed him and his children, and then you took all of his wives and you made them your own and claimed dominance over them as well as everything else in his house. It's really awful, absolutely horrifying, death and destruction everywhere, Terrible for the women, terrible for the children, uh, pretty much terrible for everybody. In fact, actually, if you wanted to kind of joke, I've joked with Nick about this so many times, the only thing certain in life, death, taxes, and suffering, uh, this is going to be in that kind of category of passages that are getting ready to deal with that great reality of suffering. What we're going to be dealing with is an impending change of power. Again, not a peaceful transfer the way that we um, see in our our current climate, um, but really horrible. Uh, We have here introduced in in chapter 45, verse 1, Cyrus, who's going to be the upcoming leader who's really going to mark, in so many ways, the conclusion of what's already been worked through throughout the book of Isaiah. 
what's happened in uh, the, the, the nation of Israel has been a nation that has wandered from God. They've rejected him. They've rejected his word. They've rejected his ways. Uh, and so the Lord has continued to prophesy destruction, 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 destruction. And that destruction uh, looks like a history that is uh, extremely, really awful, right? A nation that, that splits north and south. Uh, those nation, that nation becomes two nations. Neither of those nations then walk with the Lord, and, and you have death and destruction, death and destruction, death and destruction that are prophesied. They don't repent. And so the northern nation is wiped off the planet uh, by the Assyrians in 722 uh, B.C., and it's, it's a big bad, it's a big problem. Uh, you would think at that point the southern nation would repent. They don't, and they kind of stay the course for a little bit longer until 586, and the Babylonians come in and wipe them both off the map. And Israel as a nation, God's people as a nation, kind of cease to be. Uh, and if you were going to kind of look at it, you would have to wonder what's going on. Uh, so much of the Old Testament is written uh, it really from kind of the mindset of competition. This is a fun thing. America being one of the great competitive nations, we really don't read the Bible this way. It's, it's very odd that we don't. Uh, the Old Testament particularly is written like the great God Olympics. It, it's written as a, a kind of competition between all of the gods of the lands, so that when uh, the Lord goes to work and give his word within the context of cultures and societies, he's, he's doing it in a way that's imposing his will and his victory over the other nations around them. Example, when he, he gives them the ten plagues before he takes them out of Egypt, each one of those plagues was geared around one of the gods of Egypt. So that the Lord was saying, hey, look, you think your gods are that great? Let me show you what greatness is. This is it. And he takes that God's power and then uses it to destroy the land. He's actively mocking their gods. He's openly ridiculing them, showing their gods are as nothing. They're puny before him because he is the great God. He's constantly doing battle with the Baals and with the Asherahs. And he's constantly showcasing that he is the great God and mighty God. That's really, you really kind of think about it, one of the main points of the Old Testament, weirdly one of those that we miss. And so when you pick up with a passage kind of where we are historically, a Jew would have to wonder, what is God doing? This God who has been showcasing that he's the great God, he's bigger than all other gods, and the proof of it is how he conquers their gods, what do we do when his people are invaded by Babylon? What do we do when his people are left in captivity? Do we doubt that God? What do we do? Remember, the Babylonians were wretched, wretched, wretched people. Right? Not good. We don't like them. I mean, they're bad. They're bad. The scenes coming out of uh, Israel actually this week, not probably that dissimilar to what we were watching uh, had we been alive when the Babylonians invaded. If you read some of those news stories this week and how the Jews were treated absolutely horribly. Babylonians are wretched. Absolutely dreadful. And so you would have this kind of moment in time where as a people you were going, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? We, we're your people. We're supposed to be governed by your king. And now you've given us you know, this wicked king of, of Babylon who's destroying your people. 
What are you doing? And so, chapter 45. The Lord says to his anointed. Now, this is interesting because uh, this is the language here of almost messianic language. That anointed term is God placing special uh, favor, placing uh, special uh, anointing of his spirit onto a person, onto a man. Um, Maybe this is the Messiah. It's not, but maybe at first reading. And it turns out that it's Cyrus, and you would think, wait, what now? I was expecting you to say, this is what God says to his anointed, the king of the Jews, I will raise you up and you'll destroy Babylon. I wasn't expecting you to say, this is what I say of my anointed, the pagan Gentile king who's going to raise up and destroy Babylon with his new nation, (laughs) the Medes and Persians. I, I wasn't expecting that. Here you have a bad guy replacing another bad guy. I mean, he's probably less bad. Cyrus is going to be the one who ultimately kind of gives them permission under Ezra and Nehemiah and such to kind of get back into the land. Uh, but this guy is, we know through history, a pluralist. He kind of accepts all gods. He just uses whichever god is local to try to arm twist the people into obedience. He's not a good guy. This is the classic out of the frying pan and into the fire. And this is what we uh, so often see in politics, where one bad politician is replaced by another one uh, of maybe different stripe, different uh, side of the aisle, still just as wicked and corrupt. And interestingly, listen to how God speaks about this Gentile, unbelieving, wicked king. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. So this is my man. This is my king. This is the one that I will use. And in fact, his right hand I have grasped. Uh, The Lord is, in essence, kind of his strength. The Lord is the one that's leading him to do and accomplish what he's doing. This would be very shocking. I mean, again, if we're going to kind of put this in modern language, this would be the Lord saying, let me talk to you about my anointed the head of Al-Qaeda that's getting ready to invade and destroy Hamas in Israel right now. And if we were like, I'm sorry, what now? You're the God of the Bible and you're saying you're anointed as the head of Al-Qaeda, I'm sorry, what now? Who? That's functionally what we have, right? Kind of putting it in modern language. This is the king whose right hand I've grasped. The Lord has him by the right hand, and the Lord is the one that's dragging him into his various deeds of greatness and wonder. This is the Lord's man who is going to subdue nations, who's going to destroy kings, who's going to establish rule and reign. In fact, actually, the reason why this Cyrus, this wicked king, is going to be so successful at defeating the other wicked king is because, verse 2, the Lord himself will go before him. I will go before you and level the exalted places. This is the same language that's used of John the Baptist before Jesus shows up. This is really interesting. It's used to describe the arrival prior to Christ, and here you have God saying he will do that before the arrival of Cyrus. That the Lord will bless this wicked king. That the Lord will break in pieces the enemies in front of him so that those that stand in his way will not be able to stand in his way. That the Lord will give him access to the treasures of mystery that are unknown by man. That the Lord 
is the one who is doing it. In verse 3 even, so that Cyrus himself would know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you Cyrus by your name. That's really interesting. Now, ultimately, it's going to be then uh, referring to how he refers to his people, how he calls Israel. But he's doing this, leading this Cyrus, because he's the Lord's man. Look at verse 4. This is amazing that he's saying it. It's for the sake of my people. It's for the sake of my servant Jacob. It's the sake of Israel, my people, that I, the Lord, called you Cyrus, wicked Cyrus, by your name. I named you, though you didn't know me, and you still don't know me. You hate me, don't really believe in me. I'm the Lord, and there's no other. You may think you're a god. You're going to use all of gods of the nations, uh, and you're, you're just a petty little, futile little king. But for this moment in time, you're my king. That is an interesting thought to think about, isn't it? That the Lord is saying this of one of the great wicked kings in history. That God himself is saying that for this moment in time, you're my king. That I'm going to place you where I've chosen to place you. That I'm going to use you to do the things that I've chosen for you to do. That I will accomplish my purposes in you. We have the same idea taken up in Romans 13 when Paul speaks of uh, the, the government, and he says all governments that exist are there because God made them. All governments have the authority that God has given them, and all governments in some fashion are his emissaries. They are his ambassadors. He uses them, and, and you would think, well, I mean, yeah, was, he was talking about a, a great government back then, right? He was talking about the only government in human history to execute the second person of the Trinity. He was talking about the only government in human history to ever crucify the Son of God. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's not talking about a really good government, right? If the Romans were so skilled at their leadership that they killed the very Son of God, we can't say they were a good government. But interestingly, Paul speaks of them as being the emissaries of God. And what you have in this, uh, this kind of section of Isaiah and the larger themes of Scripture is that the Lord holds the king's heart in his hands. And even wicked kings are his kings. He uses them to do his purposes. Now, that's easy for us to agree with when our king is the guy that's in charge. Right? It, it's easy for us to agree with if, if we like the next president, if he's the one that we vote for or she's the one that we vote for. It's easy for us to agree if our current president is the one that you voted for and you like him or uh, his vice president. It, it's easy for us to agree that these are God's men or God's women when ours are the ones that are in charge. But Isaiah 45 is not talking about a good one. It's not talking about one of the ones that we like. In fact, actually, this one's talking about one of the wicked ones who would destroy a different wicked one, both of whom the people of God would hate. 
again, go back to that Al-Qaeda and Hamas illustration. We don't like either of those. They're both the bad guys. And here we have the Lord taking sides amongst the bad guys. It's so interesting, isn't it? It's actually going to be very important for us kind of conceptually as God's people to, to begin to think in these terms. That these people are God's people that he's using for a time. Right? That's why we can say he may not be God's king permanently, but he's God's king right now. He's the one that God is going to use right now. And what that's going to do is, is kind of set up a really big principle in the background that God is sovereign in charge of all things. That everything that we experience, that everything we interact with, that everything we do, that everything we receive, whether we're active or passive, whether we do it or it's done to us, that all of that is under the control of God. It's going to help us to think about suffering because when we suffer, we know that God is in charge of that suffering. It's, it's going to help us to think about our victories because God is in charge of those victories. It's going to help us when we play sports because the Lord is the one who's in charge of which way the ball bounces. It's why, it, I've said it before, it's why I never, ever, ever saw the appeal of gambling because the Lord is the one who controls the dice. There's no part of this reality that's outside of his control. And again, it's very easy on good days to do that and to believe that, right? It's really easy when we're kind of high on the hog, so to speak, to say, well, yeah, God's in charge. Look, he's blessing me. Yay. Where it gets difficult is when days get hard. And in fact, actually, where it gets really tough is when, when we're actually in the bad times. Because the, the temptation is to then kind of, once we begin to understand that first principle that God's in charge, the temptation is to turn on him and to start pointing fingers at him and say, hey, hey, you know this thing that's hurting my heart right now? It's your fault. You're the one to blame. In fact, our God is so wise, actually, he answers that question. Verses 9 through 13 really kind of pick up that question. Am I allowed to kind of turn at God and then point the finger? If the Lord is the one who's sovereign over all things, if he's sovereign over all nations, if he's sovereign over all kings, if he's sovereign over all suffering and all difficulty, uh, again, let's just back up one more. Let's make sure he's talking about the hard stuff. Look at verse 7. I am the one who forms light and darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. Right? This is the God who is sovereign over the good things and the bad things. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Verse 7. He then, in verses 9 through 13, addresses what happens when I want to point the finger at God. Am I allowed to do that? Am I, am I, am I allowed to point the finger at God? Well, what would you guess? Right? Am, I, am I allowed to do that? I mean, the Bible has a good category for questions. There are a lot of questions in the Bible, a lot of questions in the Psalms. How far am I allowed to go? Well, Isaiah 45, not there. <laughs> That's going to be the answer. Not there. That's not an okay question. Look at verses 9 through 13. The Lord answers that. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Well, there's your answer. 
Am I allowed to point the finger at God and say, this is your fault, you're doing this? And God answers with, no, you're not. That is not an okay question. Woe to you. Woe to the person who begins to question the one who formed him. Does the clay say to the potter, you done messed up? What's wrong with you? You're a terrible potter. What are you making? You didn't even put handles on this pot. What are you doing? It's like if you, if you ask me to draw something, right, and the, the crayons started speaking to me, what are you doing? You're horrible at this. What are you trying to draw? Okay, fair enough. Actually, the crayons would be right on that one, right? I can't, I can't draw. I don't know. It's a stick figure. You should be able to recognize that. You can't? Oh, I'm sorry. The problem here is that the Lord never makes mistakes. And effectively, what we have in this situation is the crayons are talking back. You don't know what you're doing, God. This drawing's ugly. What are you doing? And these verses 9 through 13 is the Lord gently saying, you're still a crayon. You should probably stop talking about that. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work doesn't have handles. You messed up the pot. What are you making? <laughs> I love verse 10. It, it, I giggled reading it earlier. It's so funny to me. Woe to him who says to the father, what kind of kids are you having? It's such a great insult because it's coming from the kid. What's wrong with you, dad? What kind of kids are you making? And it's kind of like, I mean, you're the answer to that. Like, you're the kid that I'm making. What do you, okay, all right, fair enough. <laughs> or the next one, which is, I think, even funnier. Right? Pregnant ladies in the room, could you imagine this if somebody walked up to you and asked you this question? <laughs> it's so funny. Like, what kind of kid are you having? I don't know. What are you asking me that? What an inappropriate question. I know pregnant ladies get inappropriate questions all the time. I'm so sorry that you get asked them. It's really horrible, ladies. I'm so sorry. I hope nobody ever asks this one of you. What's wrong with that kid? What are you having? I'm like, I don't know. It's still inside. I don't know what's going on. I love that. It's so silly. It's so silly, but that, that's the point God's making is he's actually answering those questions so directly. Like, are you allowed to go back to God and say, God, you don't know what you're doing? And he's like, no, you can't ask that question. There are a lot of questions you can ask. There are a lot of things you can wonder. There are a lot of things you can be confused by, but are you allowed to question either his authority or his goodness along the way? No, you're not. You can ask for help to understand it. And you're going to need to do that if you ever suffer really badly. You can ask for his help to believe it. And you're going to need to do that if you ever suffer really terribly. But to accuse him, mm, that's not okay. As if it weren't clear enough, 11 through 13, he then kind of answers it a bit more fully. Ask of me the things to come. When we go to talk about this, are you going to be the boss of me? Are you going to command me about my children? Are you going to command me about the work of my hands? Why? Well, I'm the one who made the earth. I made, I made the earth and everything in it. I spoke it into existence. I created man from the dirt, created women from the rib of Adam. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens. I'm the one who made everything. 
Who are you to critique me? Who are you to critique me? Uh, some of you work in, in, in fields that are extremely technical, like very, very technical. And I, I love just kind of like this imaginary scenario that like you, you get home from work, right? You've been busting your neck all day doing this ridiculously te- technical, ridiculously difficult job. And like the four-year-old comes in and is like, hey, mom or dad, why didn't you just do it this way? I, I don't know, kid. I mean, I only spent 20 years of education to get 20 years of experience to do the very thing that you're talking about, but I'm sure you at four years old have figured out how to do it great. I appreciate your input. Now, of course, you don't answer snarkily to the four-year-old because you love them. But it's that same kind of moment in time, isn't it, where it's like you have no idea what you're talking about. Your ignorance is just showing every which way. And I would love to just be like, well, that's what the Jews were doing back then. We never do that, do we? But it's like, this is like suffering 101, <laughs> right? This is what many of us are like just the moment we get just the tiniest little bit hangry. Right? By the end of our congregational meeting, potentially, right? We're missing our lunch. We're a little bit late, ready for our afternoon nap. I'm going to get a little grumpy, and I'm going to complain and go like, well, what's going on? What kind of mess are you making of this, God? What are you doing? And he's like, uh-uh, nope. No, no. You don't get to blame me. You don't get to blame me because you don't even understand one one millionth of what I have in store. You don't get to talk about that because you don't know what I'm doing. And that's actually where he heads. He's one of the great reasons why he tells his people lovingly and respectfully to keep our mouths shut when we go to complain about his perfect plan because Cyrus does something very, very important in the history of redemption. Cyrus is one of the great kings that the Lord uses along the way to prepare history for the Messiah. That's why he's referred to as the anointed one. That's why he's referred to in almost messianic languages. He's part of that that kind of great story that God is crafting that will culminate in Jesus, you know, five and a half centuries later, whatever. In fact, we get to see this really with the Lord answering it. Okay, uh, verse 13, I've stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all this way. He'll build my city, send my expert. I'm the one in charge of this. Ah, I'm in charge, God saying. What happens in verses 14 through 17? Look, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you're complaining about. This is what you're, in some sense, running your mouth about. Verses 14, and seven, 14 through 17. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. Oh, wait, what now? You, this nation of mine that don't actually exist at the point in history in which this is taking place, you, the people of mine, the nation of mine that has been wiped off the map, you are going to be in a time in history where you will be so victorious that even your greatest age-old enemies will come to you and they will come to you in chains and they will bow down and even they will recognize your God is the great God. Wow. All right, I mean, that sounds pretty good. I mean, you mean that 
Cyrus is going to be part of the plan that all of my enemies are going to be defeated before me? You mean that, that Silas is going to be, uh, Cyrus is going to be part of the plan where I'm going to be victorious over everything? I mean, that's pretty good. I like that. But it's intriguing that, like, really, we, <laughs> we think about it in that way so clearly when it's Cyrus, but we don't think about it that clearly when it's a really terrible boss at work or ill-timed sickness or cancer or that crazy driver that cuts us off in traffic or that evil person that we have to deal with that's just making our life terrible. It's easy for us to deal with this when it's somebody else's problem. Right? It's easy for us when somebody else is suffering for us to kind of come and put an arm around them and say, hey, brother or sister, I love you. You need to remember God's at work and he's going to do something good from it. And it's hard for us to remember when it's us to say this is part of what God is using for my complete and total victory. All right, there will be a day coming where I will have no enemies left standing. That is wonderful to think about. I, Michael Dixon, there will be a day coming where none of my enemies will be left standing. Same for you. And whatever difficulty you're having in this moment in time is part of what the Lord will use to accomplish that. It's one of the great gifts, weirdly, that he does for his people is that he uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. All right, so verses 14 through 17, the, the victory's total. All of the nations come here. Uh, they bow down before the Lord. They're, they're bowed down even before Israel. But then 18 through 25 is a category introduced here that's it's been all throughout the Old Testament, but sometimes hidden a bit more so than, than others, is that now, not only are these enemies going to be gathered together, but a, a significant portion of them will actually become worshipers of God. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he's God. Who formed it in the earth and made it, he established it, he didn't create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. This is what this God says. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret or land of darkness and hide my words. I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. Your, your time is not wasted. Your energy is not wasted. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. My words are true. Assemble yourselves together. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They don't know what's going on. They, don't know, they have no knowledge. They carry about their wooden idols. They, 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 they don't understand. But, verse 21, you will be my messengers of salvation. Declare, this is legal speak for the next two verses, declare and present your case. Let them take up counsel together. Who's told this long ago? Who declared it? It was I, the Lord, who said it, right? I'm the righteous God. There's no other God before me. So then what happens, verses 22, 23, turn to me and be saved, the message of salvation. You see, there's an intellectual argument that's being worked out here. I don't like the man that's going to come, Cyrus. He's going to be a bad king. God says, cool your jets. He's my guy, at least for a season. And everybody's going to say, well, I don't like your guy. And maybe I shouldn't like you. 
And then the Lord responds and says, well, you should probably keep your mouth shut about that point because I know exactly what I'm doing. And then they might say, well, I don't know what you're doing. And he says, I'm gonna tell you exactly what I'm doing. I'm bringing about your victory and I'm bringing about their salvation. All right. I mean, I like that. I like my victory and I like salvation. Two things I really like a lot. Maybe I could stay just a little bit stronger for just a little bit longer. You see, this is the great news, people of God, is that our God is the God who is mighty to save. He saves men and women, boys and girls, and he saves from sin. His salvation is not partial, it is total. It is complete and comprehensive. And his salvation is done in ways that you would never have guessed. I love it. In fact, actually, it's so marvelous. The disciples even got confused, and they're watching it happen in front of them. Right? The second person of the Trinity, God Almighty, steps inside time and space in the form of a man, fully human, truly man, truly God, fully God, Jesus Christ, lives a perfect life, and then even as he lives that perfect life, he fully orchestrates his events so that they send him to the cross. Now, please be reminded, Jesus was in charge of that. He was the one that forced it and navigated his way to the cross. He spent time on the cross in which he even taught them as he suffered. While he was on the cross, he bore the full weight of the wrath of God for uh, your sins and for mine, not for his because he didn't do any. He went through hell, literally, God's wrath on that cross. And when he had paid it fully, he then gave up his life. They didn't take it from him. He gave it freely so that the punishment would be fully paid for sin. You would never, never have seen that coming. I mean, you think about Genesis 3 back at the curse when the the promise was first made of salvation. It says that the Lord would provide a way, but you never would have guessed like that. It's why you even at points have Peter actively getting in the way. At one point, you remember, he rebukes Jesus. Don't do this. You're doing it the wrong way. Jesus is like, get out of the way, Satan. Move. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm in charge. I'm accomplishing my plan, and my plan will produce your victory and salvation. The salvation that will be given freely to any who ask. So then, what does that do for our suffering? Some of us suffering very gravely in the moment. Some not, but some very gravely. Well, it it does do a couple of things. One is it gives you a sense of meaning to it. Uh, Honestly, you sit there while you suffer and go, "I, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I'm called to walk this path. I I don't understand why I'm called uh, to spend this time. I don't understand. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) It doesn't have to make sense. That's one of the great mistakes of suffering is to think that it has to make sense right now. Because what Jesus and what God is ultimately saying in Isaiah 45 is that it'll make sense in the future. Because he's not wasting it. He's not wasting it. Some of us, we think that the Lord deals with our, our sufferings uh, the way that, like, you know, an eight-year-old deals with their allowance in a candy store. Right? They go in and just spend everything that they can, and walk out with a sugar rush. They crash ten minutes later and feel terrible. Like, what happened? What, what? We think the Lord spends our suffering the same way. He just wastes it everywhere. Instead of thinking of the Lord using even our suffering as the perfect tactician, 
to accomplish everything that he wishes to accomplish because your suffering is one of the tools that he uses for your good and weirdly even for the salvation of others in a way that we don't understand. In fact, this is so key, friends, is to begin to pack into your brain right now, even if you're not suffering, so that you know, when I do, the Lord is not wasting this. And He's not wasting it. He's doing something greater than even I can understand. For He is the good God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You don't waste our difficulty. Forgive us for sometimes wanting to point the finger at You and blame You. That's wrong and we're sorry. And we ask now, Lord, that You would um, give us greater faith and constitution even when we suffer. For Christ's sake, amen.